Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only program from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Murray Williams. In the program this week, the Silver Ferns head coach Ruth Aitken has just announced she's retiring and we talk to her about that decision and the new role she'll step into at the end of October. Rugby and the All Blacks have never beaten South Africa in Port Elizabeth and we'll try to change that on Sunday morning with the team missing many first-choice players. We'll hear from the acting captain and the new fullback. The first appointment's been made to the Organising Committee for Cricket's 2015 World Cup. We talked to New Zealand Cricket's new chairman about that and the tournament being jointly hosted with Australia. The Warriors are just three games from the end of the National Rugby League's regular season and are still a chance of a top-four finish and a home start to the playoffs. One of the team's veterans assesses their prospects. The basketball season's looming and the New Zealand Breakers have a new main sponsor and a new-look roster. We'll hear from two of the club's senior players and from ultra-marathon runner Lisa Tarmati who talks about her latest epic. Netball first though and the Silver Ferns coach Ruth Aiken will take on a new role as Netball New Zealand's coaching director after the October series against Australia. Aitken, who played for New Zealand, took over the Silver Ferns in 2001 and won 85 of her 110 games, including the 2003 World Championship and the 2006 and 2010 Commonwealth Games gold medals. But the Silver Ferns couldn't regain the World Championship from Australia and Singapore, and Stephen Hewson asked Aitken when she decided it was time to quit. Like with the girls who I just said after you know the disappointment and after the, the loss, immediately now is not the time to make any decisions you know give yourself a bit of time go home and take stock of things so I did it I told myself went home went away with family had a bit of time and and really just had an opportunity to talk through with them while they were absolutely supportive of whatever decision I made I knew in my heart of hearts that it's the time I've had nearly 10 years in the job and and it is time for the team to have new and different ideas and probably time for me to do something else but it was as you can imagine it was hugely hard because it's a a team that I've just loved being part of and and also after the loss I didn't want it to come across to the girls that I was leaving them in the lurch because I've always said that you know after disappointment you pick yourself up and you get on with things so I'm very delighted to have an opportunity to get back in the coaching arena for the next five tests and then have really made my way to be able to say farewell in a better environment, I suppose. Was the role of coaching director on the table at that point? You knew you had that? No, not until uh, I did all that thinking and then I came back from holiday and said, look, Raylene, you know, we need to talk. As we both had agreed we would do after all that. And so I just came back then and said, you know, I believe it's the right time. And she said, well, you know, you need to make sure that you've thought about it. We talked quite a bit about it. She said, well, how about this? And I thought, oh, that would be very good. Certainly, I take a step back from the coal face, but it is something I'm absolutely passionate about is, is coaching. You know, I want netball in New Zealand to be really strong for a long, very long time, and coaching is so important in that. You mentioned that being in the role for, for 10 years is a long time at international 
level. Yes. Was that the key factor? You felt 10 years was time enough? I felt it was time enough in terms of the team and, and where they were. I've had two such amazing assistant coaches to work with in terms of Lee and then Waimarama. And, and I, I felt during that time that we had created change within the Silver Fern, so I didn't feel it was the case of same old, same old. But I did think that it was time for someone else to take the total reins of it. I just think it is healthy, and I felt that it, I'd given not exactly as much as I had to give because I, I do believe learning and keeping developing is, is something that I try and do all the time. But no, it just felt right, and I suppose that's just your instinct, really. Did you feel that, given Waitaman, who's been there for several years now, that it would be her time and that to stay around might be stifling her career? I certainly think that in the way I operate with assistant coaches is that I try and absolutely develop them to the best that they can be so I don't believe that I sort of try and limit them to a particular role but I do think whether it's why or whether it's someone else that actually it just is the right time and you know that now for is for Netball New Zealand to decide in the, the appointments panel as to who is the best person we've got really strong candidates why would be a great candidate and I think some of our, our franchise coaches would still be a great candidates as well so no, now remains to be seen. Who she would appear to be the natural successor, though. Yes, certainly, having been involved in the role and, and done such a great job in that, yes, you would, but you never know until what comes out through the appointment process, and I, I do think that it is important that people keep an open mind about other options too. They may not be so public at this point in time, but you may have a good memory to remember 10 years ago it was probably a bit of Ruth Who, really, when I was appointed Silver Ferns coach, and it depends on what you bring to the the selection process and how your vision of where the silver ferns can go and how you can get them there, how you communicate that as well. So I definitely don't think it's a closed shop, but yes, you'd have to say that why would be a front runner. It would have to be a New Zealander, do you think? I think it would. I, I think, A, we have got enough talent in New Zealand to choose from, and, and B, I think as our national team, we would really like a, a New Zealander to be there, but she or he, I suppose, would um, still has to be the best person, but I think they would be, and we've got plenty of people in New Zealand who would do that really well. Are you likely to play any role in the appointment? No, I think it's important not to. That kind of gives you a little bit of ideas above your station if you're going to do your own successor as well. <laughs> so. Highlights, I mean, presumably you've, you've got a few. Do you yeah. think, think back on those at times, though? Do you like to, to bask in a little afterglow at times? If you're sitting down there having a, I don't know, a, a cup of coffee at the end of the day and, and think, the and think chair, that, yes. well, yeah. <laughs> Look, I, I think actually probably to be able to keep doing something for 10 years, you, you highlight, for me, it's, it's seeing the likes of... Casey Williams, Laura Langman, Maria Tutai, the strong young women that they are now in terms of their netball, in terms of their lives, from the growth that they have had since when they came into the squad as, you know, these tiny little things and, and just being so young and just seeing what being involved in the Silver Ferns can do to help grow our young women. That to me is an everyday highlight that keeps me going. In terms of the pinnacle events, well, 2003 was obviously the first, but was such a an achievement for a group of women who had experienced such a lot of disappointment of those one-goal losses for three or four 
pinnacle events before that and to see the tenacity and the strength of character to get them over the line in Jamaica made my heart burst really. And then, yeah, the double overtime last year <laughs> would have to go down as one of the most, yes, heart-stopping highlights really. It just was an amazing game to be part of. But I was reflecting, Stephen, that in the last six, you know, I've had three Commonwealth Games and three World Championships that I've been lucky enough to lead the team on. And we've had three wins and then two of our losses have actually gone into overtime. And then there was one true loss as such. So, yeah, the intensity and the adrenaline's been pretty full on, I must say. So it'd be nice to kick back a little bit from that. Are you someone that thrives on that, though? Uh, yes, <laughs> I do love it. But, um, yes, that whole thing, am I going to be sick or am I going to be ecstatic, is kind of an interesting place to be. And it's hard to think of life without it, but it just happens. And you just actually have to get on with it. And, and I'm sure I will find other challenges to keep myself going with. It's the retiring Silver Ferns head coach, Ruth Aitken, talking to Stephen Hewson. And this is Extra Time, a web-only programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Murray Williams. Rugby now, and there's little doubt the Springboks have more at stake in Port Elizabeth than the All Blacks. After leaving eight frontline players at home, coach Graham Henry has given his side a challenge by saying it'll be interesting to see how well they respond to the pressure. On the other hand, the Springboks haven't won a match in the Tri-Nations this year, and the World Cup holders have lost their last four matches against the All Blacks. With Richie McCaw and seven other first-choice players being rested or recovering from injury instead of any Sivivatu's case, hooker Kevin Merlamu is leading the side in the last test before the World Cup squad's named in Brisbane on Tuesday. While there's plenty of experience in the tight forwards, there's a new-look back three with fullback Israel Dagg and right-wing Isaiah Toyava joining Jose Aguirre after long injury breaks. Richard Kahu is the other returning backline casualty, but Merlamu says it's still a strong team and he's relishing being captain for the first time since 2008 in Scotland. He's also confident his team can cope in the absence of so many rested regulars, including Richie McCaw and first five Dan Carter. Knowing that uh, those two are not here, it has to go off. And uh, we've, got, we've still got a couple of guys here that have been in the team for a long time. And we know the expectation um, that goes along with being an all-black. So uh, I think um, everyone's taking responsibility, which is good. Kevin Mialamu will pack down with Blues teammates Tony Woodcock, who's back at Loosehead Prop after missing most of the Super Rugby season with a foot injury, and John Arfoa, who's recovered from a fractured cheekbone. Although the All Blacks are a long way from home, they got a warm welcome in Port Elizabeth where some locals feel the South African rugby union's forgotten them. It's a throwback to the apartheid era when black and coloured fans supported visiting teams, especially the All Blacks. And although Kevin Mialamu says he knew there was still some support, the extent of it came as a pleasant surprise. I actually didn't think it was going to be that, that big, but uh, to be able to get off the plane and see that many supporters here, it's amazing being an all-black, entering into South Africa and to see that many supporters. It's, uh, it was just it was unbelievable for us to get off, uh, get off a plane and have an airport full of all-black supporters and flags. I tell you, I haven't been in, in, in a team and received something like that outside New Zealand. That's Kevin Mialamu. Meanwhile, fullback Israel Dagg, who needed surgery in May after rupturing a quadricep tendon in his right thigh, knows what to expect from the Springboks. They love to kick it, and uh, you know, we love to run it, so they can kick it as much as they want. We love to run the ball, so um, we just, you know, they're a great kicking team. They love putting those big high balls up, so uh, it will test us, but um, we're just going to try and nullify that, and they seem to change a bit of their game, and they're definitely a, a great team and it's going to be a tough 
they're going to come out firing this weekend because they have for a couple of losses. They, they wouldn't want that, so they want to try and nullify that this weekend. So it's going to be a tough game. Yeah, so you mentioned the kicking game. Um, the Springboks used that to great effect, particularly in 2009. Do you feel that the game has sort of swung in terms of the balance is now more in favour of the people receiving the kicks? and wanting to run it than the guys actually kicking I always think the game is changing. Teams are liking to run it a lot more now, but uh, you know, it's, it's a great weapon as well when you can kick it and get a good chase around under the ball and, and get that ball back and there's no one back there. It's, it's a great attacking ploy to... Yeah, I guess it's a half and half really. It depends on the kick. If the kick's a good kick and they got a good chase, then it's, it's a good weapon, but if, if it's just that a bit too long, then it's a great attacking uh, for the, the team receiving, so it's, it's half and half really. That's Israel Dagg talking to Ken Borland, and this is Extra Time, a web-only programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Murray Williams. Cricket Australia and New Zealand Cricket have appointed Australian businessman James Strong to chair the organising committee for the jointly hosted 2015 World Cup. Strong's on the boards of various companies and chairs the supermarket chain Woolworths and is also on the board of the corporation that runs the Australian Formula One Grand Prix and the Australian Motorcycle Grand Prix. He'll lead the board which will oversee the delivery of the event, including appointment of, of the chief executive, and Stephen Hewson asked New Zealand Cricket's new chairman Chris Moller how long it'll be before it's known where matches will be played. That's going to take a little bit of time. You may or may not recall that originally this tournament was going to be a 10-team tournament that was decided back in October last year at its meeting in Hong Kong in June. The ICC executive board decided to change that from 10 teams, which we've been planning on, to 14 teams. So that has thrown a bit of additional work into the process. The next main step will be to appoint a chief executive and once he or she is in place then more of the detail of those important matches around match locations will be worked through. How much reorganising has it taken that the increase from 10 to 14 teams? Uh, it's quite a significantly different structure of the tournament, under a 10-team tournament, then all teams would have played each other, so nine games in a round-robin format. Under a 14-team format, it is the same as the tournament held earlier this year in India, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. So yeah, it is quite fundamentally different because it will be pools rather than round-robin. How much do you take or can you take or will be taken from the Rugby World Cup hosting in New Zealand? Will it be sharing of knowledge that, that might have gone on? Absolutely. Obviously, I've got a strong foot in both camps. And, you know, I've been passing on some of that knowledge through the meetings we've been having for Cricket World Cup over the past uh, nine months or so. There are mechanisms set up for Rugby World Cup experienced people to uh, inform Cricket World Cup about what their learnings and lessons are. We've had some of their staff already speak to us as an organising committee and arrangements are in place for potentially transferring some of those staff across to Cricket World Cup once we're ready to make permanent employees. So yeah, there's a good lot of liaison going on and that is only sensible to share those learnings. 
What are some of the, the major obstacles that you're going to face with, with a joint tournament as opposed to a one-country host? Yes, clearly. I mean, when you're talking across two sovereign boundaries, there's transport issues, immigration issues, customs issues, different laws in both countries, although through closer economic relations, we've had a lot of greater alignment of those at federal level in Australia. But of course, you then have all of the states with their own laws in different areas. So yeah, it's quite complex. It certainly does make things harder. And I'm sure you will recall that uh, in 2002, we were going to be co-hosts with Australia Rugby World Cup, and that ended up not being the case. And we are utterly determined to ensure that that doesn't become the case for Cricket World Cup 2015. New Zealand Cricket's chairman Chris Moller talking to Stephen Hewson, and this is Extra Time. Rugby league now, and in theory, the Warriors match in Penrith on Saturday night should be their best chance of a win in their last three regular season games as they hunt for a top four finish. But while the Panthers are out of contention, they'll be out to impress their new head coach, the Warriors' departing boss, Ivan Cleary. The match is Captain Petro Thevenasiva's last at Penrith and may be a last chance for the Panthers' errant speedster Michael Jennings, who's been moved from centre to fullback and is on a final warning after turning up at training drunk. The Warriors' defensive lynchman Michael Luck told me they can't afford to repeat their slow start in last weekend's home win over the Knights. They're a big physical side. They try and get over the top here in the middle of the field and then they've got some, some pretty handy guys out wide. I think Jennings is back at fullback this week, so he's as dangerous a, a bloke as there is in the game. So, yeah, very, very tough game. The game we played there last year, was we ended up winning 12-6, but you know, one of the hardest games I can remember playing physically, so uh, yeah, I'm expecting nothing less Saturday night. Yeah, uh, Pedro Thevenathiva, he's, he's a guy that kind of likes to leave from the front and gets a man after your own heart. What do you need to do to shut down someone as, as straight up the guts as he is? Yeah, well, that's just a, a straight physical battle. You know, he's a big guy that, that goes forward well and he's arguably the, the best prop in the game, so that's a big job for all our, our guys in the middle to, to get out and put some pressure on him from marker and try and stop him before he gets wound up because he's pretty hard to stop. Last weekend you had a fairly ordinary first half again so what have you been doing about how to avoid that because presumably if you give these guys a start like you did last weekend you mightn't be able to pull it off again. Yeah that's right I think it's you know, that's not an ability thing, that's an attitude thing. You know, the, the most pleasing thing out of the last few weeks is that we've been able to turn it around you know, at half-time without needing to look over a video to do it. So you know, it proves that we all know how to play and what sort of play gets results, but we just have to go and do it from the start of the game and, and not wait for a kick in the bum at half-time. So that's what we'll do this week. What sort of a lift do you guys get from when you see someone like Sean Johnson do what he did in Brisbane in terms of knowing that that potential's there? It's good. He's not the only one. We've got guys that can do things from all over the park. Kevin Locke, Valeti Mateo, Manu Vadove all do some great things. So it's up to the rest of us just to get on the front foot and get them in field position where they can do the things that they're brilliant at and the rest of us reap the rewards from it. But I don't think they can do that if we're battling, if we haven't got the ball like we were here on Saturday night. We just didn't have any opportunity with the footy in the first half. And they'd come in at half time and said, we need to complete our sets a bit better and put a bit of pressure on Newcastle. So that's what we've got to do this week against Penrith. That's Michael Luck from the Warriors, and this is Extra Time, a web-only program from Radio New Zealand Sport. 
The New Zealand Breakers will start the next Australian National Basketball League season as defending champions. They won't have their star point guard Kirk Penny, who's off to Spain, but American forward Gary Wilkinson's back with another import, point guard Cedric Jackson, and Sky City's their new main sponsor. I talked to two of the team's veterans about the upcoming season and began by asking Dylan Boucher about the importance of being able to bring back Wilkinson after Penny's departure. A part of our success last year was every year building and, and making sure we had continuity and, and again bringing Gary back is, is making sure we have that continuity and, and obviously losing Kirk is a big hole but you know you bring someone like Gary back, the responsibility now falls on everybody else including Gary and you know it's something we're excited about and something we managed to do for the first six games of the season last year so we're very confident that this year we can do it without him again. And Cedric, what do you know about him? Don't know a lot to be honest. He comes with very good CV and very good reps from, from reputable people so we're hoping that, that he comes out here and does some good things for the breakers. And you've got some guys coming back from the Tall Blacks and presumably that will help. There'll be match uh, match conditions from the get-go. Yeah, I mean it's uh, unfortunately for the for the breakers we're disrupted a lot with the Tall Black campaign and we are every year and you know it's something we don't talk too much about and we don't make too many excuses about but um, you know you're right these guys are going to be coming off uh, Tall Blacks campaign and, and hopefully be match fit and ready to go and uh, so it's exciting for them to be able to pull the Sky City Breakers uniform back on after uh, after having such a successful time on tour. And looking at the uh, the rest of the uh, the competition, many changes that you see from other teams in terms of their personnel or is it going to be pretty much the same as last year? No, you're actually seeing you know, there's quite a few new imports on teams and um, you know a few players have changed teams and you're, you're seeing some rosters completely different so we're expecting some teams to be very similar but other teams, you know, there's been quite a few changes. You look at the likes of Perth, they'll be very similar to what they were last season, but you look at a team like Melbourne who's, who's had a complete clean out of players and uh, they're a completely different team. And as far as you guys are concerned, you're going to have that big uh, cross on the back of your shirts now, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, the target just gets even bigger and bigger, you know. Um, you know I'm sure the Australians weren't happy about a New Zealand team winning their competition, so that alone is enough, but the fact that, you know, we're defending champs is going to be an even bigger target, so yeah, we're, we're enjoying having that target on our back, but at the same time, we have to make sure we're match ready. Uh, that's Dylan Boucher. I also asked CJ Bruton how hard it'll be to defend the title. It's very difficult. Knock on wood first. It's always an injury in the, the second season and obviously every time I've tried to repeat, we've gone down with the person. But uh, you know, one time I've been able to back it up, which is very exciting. It was a lot tougher than I expected. And then the, the second year in Brisbane to back it up, we lost Sam McKinnon, who was the MVP of the league and defensive player of the league. But we got all the way to the semifinals and finished second on the ladder. And I think keeping our nucleus together was able to keep us in good stead and I think same with the breakers obviously having still our nucleus we did lose three veterans this year uh, Kevin Braswell, Kirk Penny, Paul Inare, three big pieces all guards obviously Tom Abercrombie had a stellar year last year Corey Webster will get a more chance to shine this year uh, he's been waiting in the wings a long time he's been performing at practice this is his chance to shine and step into a role uh, I think uh, having Gary Wilkinson back will, will close the depth a little bit his all-star performance last year and first team All-NBL but with Micker and Dylan you still have the Tigers uh, with Chief playing as he as well as he's played this this year in the New Zealand League uh, exciting to, exciting things to come and was uh, with Kirk, Kirk gone he leaves a huge hole doesn't he, yeah, he oh he does definitely does obviously uh, he you know he's scored 20 close to 20 points a game uh, every night and you know there was nights where he shot the ball very very good and there was there was nights where you know as a group we we did our our bit to to, to make sure that it was easier for him and uh, 
not to take anything away from him. We were six and zero last year. You know, if, if people want to go back that far, uh, he, he was, as I said, he was outstanding. But again, this year, uh, we still like we did last year to start off with. Without him, uh, we're going to have to find different ways. And without Kevin, you know, uh, we have to find different ways to uh, do different things. Paulie Inari was a guy that ran the ran the ball very well and. I think uh, as we go throughout this year, the core group's playing with the Tall Blacks, and, uh, just to see how they are fair up against Australia with Australia's uh, best crop right now that they can put on the floor. We'll see where where, new, where the Tall Blacks and the Breakers stand, uh, minus a few players. Six and zero was my next question, but in Kirk's absence, having him back must be a big plus, though. Having Gary back, yes, definitely yeah, having yeah. Gary back. In Kirk's absence, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, it's always good to have. Uh, uh, Gary back, you know, obviously he's a big man, and you know you need them in this league to 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 be successful. And, and uh, obviously he shot the ball at a very good clip, and we're all looking forward to him coming back with a new addition to his family as well. Uh, we'll bring exciting times for him, but for us as a as a family, as the Breakers. Um, Obviously, the chemistry will be there from the get-go. There's not a lot of uh, changing or teaching somebody uh, in a short time. What about your own body? You've, you've been around quite a long time now. That's your what, mid-30s. So yeah. You still got yeah. the urge? Still moving, still dancing, still shimmying along. So, you know, I'm very excited about this year. And obviously, first winning a title here in New Zealand was my goal when I came over here. I said that from that one when I, I stepped in front of the cameras. And uh, obviously, to stay in front of, stay in front with that trophy is something that uh, I dream of and I know that as this year goes on and people will talk about you as I'm going to tell the players it's like there's times where you're not even going to be mentioned anymore you're just the defending champions but everyone knows deep down uh, what you've done in, in the past that past year well it's still in the same same year frame but I think as a as a group you know that monkey and letting people know straight away that uh, we're here to be not only represent New Zealand breakers but we represent New Zealand that's CJ Bruton and this is Extra Time, a web-only programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Murray Williams. The last time I spoke to the Taranaki ultramarathon runner Lisa Tarmati, she was about to tackle the Death Valley run in the United States, starting in searing heat below sea level and finishing at altitude in the Sierra Nevada. Tarmati and her crew are just back from her latest run, La Ultra, the high, 222 kilometres, often at altitudes of more than 4,000 metres in the Himalayas. Only six athletes took part in the epic and brutal run over two of India's highest passes with roads. Last year, only one runner finished, and I asked Hamati why she wanted to put herself to such a test. Since Death Valley, I've done, oh, I did Death Valley twice, and then I did the Gobi in the Sahara last year. Um, and I was just really looking for something that was a bit outside the box. You know, I sort of know that I can do deserts pretty well, um, that I handle heat and everything. But this sort of um, this race came up, and um, only one guy had done it until, until this year, and it was Himalayas. I mean, who doesn't want to go to the Himalayas for starters? Um, and it was a challenge on on a lot of different levels: altitude, uh, mountains, of course. You know, going up and down. You had heat and and cold. So, yeah, it was a little bit outside the box for me. And to be honest, being an asthmatic, altitude was a completely unknown factor, and it uh, certainly had its difficulties for me. But I really wanted to. The big draw card was no woman had done it at that stage, and I wanted to be one of the first or the first to do that. Well, did you have time to do any altitude training? It's probably a bit difficult in New Zealand, isn't yeah, it? You can't go hard. to Boulder, Colorado or anything like yeah, that, can exactly, you? Exactly, yeah. Um, I had a, what they call an altitude simulation tent, so I had that to sleep in, but it didn't really work for me. In fact, it sort of uh, had a few problems with it and ended up getting quite sick. So I went over not feeling as if yeah, it had had much benefit at all and, yeah, uh, was going into the unknown, really, and, and 
we were up at five and a half thousand metres roughly or just under. We had to go over two passes at that level, so that's quite high up. You've got about 33% of the oxygen that you have down here at this level. Yeah, which, which made for very tough and very, very scary conditions, really. And there were only six athletes uh, taking part in it. Is that a, yeah. an indication that the, the, yeah. the, the, no, no one else is uh, mad enough to try it? Yeah, it was, it's a bit like that. Dangerous in a, in a couple of ways because they had never had a race at an altitude like this before. They'd held it the first year, a year before. One guy got through, the, the others ended up in hospital with altitude sickness. And, you know, it was a big debate what sort of damage you could do to your body. So there wasn't a heck of a lot of people that wanted to put their hands up for the first time round. What I really found difficult over there, apart from the altitude, was that we were on passes near the Pakistan-China border in the Kashmir region, and it was the only road going through there, so there were army trucks for miles and transit vehicles, and that really made it hard going because it was windy, really narrow, scary roads, and the diesel coming out of those trucks was took whatever little oxygen there was left and uh, made the whole thing a bit harder. And that's also one of the uh, world's geopolitical flashpoints as well. So did you think about that? Yeah, (laughs) it's a strategic area. There's a huge military presence up there. It just added to the excitement, really, of the whole thing. Yeah. (laughs) Did you have medical assistance? Was there a a race doctor? Yes, there were actually. There were were actually four doctors from the States who came over to do some studies because they really wanted to study what, you know, happens to endurance athletes at altitude, and it was a chance for them to, to do research that had never been done before. And so, you know, we had those doctors on call for help as well, and they were quite needed. We had a few dramas along the way with some high-altitude pulmonary edema and um, altitude mountain sickness, and uh, I had asthma attacks, and another woman had asthma as well. So, uh, yeah, they were sorely needed. How many of the six completed the race? Uh, actually, all six completed all six. There were four women and two men. What does that say about the toughness of the uh, females <laughs> of the species? Yeah, uh, yeah, we're sort of outnumbered the guys this time. Um, well, really, in ultramarathon running, the longer the race, the more likely it is that a woman will win it, and the better we do, generally. And, yeah, there was a big battle for first and second place this year, and uh, Sharon Gator from the UK beats Ray Sanchez from America. So, uh, yeah, the girls came out on top this time, and I was the second woman home. So where were you overall? I was fourth. The two guys in front of me and Sharon, and then two women behind me. And you did it in just over 53 hours? That's right, yeah. And oh. we had everything from sandstorms to snowstorms and and 40-degree heat. It's a place that just changes within minutes, you know. It's, you're up at twice the height of Mount Taranaki, where I live, and the weather changes are really, really rapid. Within a space of a few hours, I had heat stroke and I had hypothermia. And you wouldn't have had much time to look at the scenery, I guess. <laughs> Plenty beforehand in the build-up, you know, in the acclimatisation phase. But uh, during the race, I was looking a lot at my feet. So what's next? Well, I need a bloody good rest, to be honest. You know, that's sort of broken me a little bit. Went through hell getting through it. So, yeah, time for some R&R, I think. That's ultramarathon runner Lisa Tarmati, and that's the show for this week. Feedback is welcome via sport at radionz.co.nz. You can get the latest sports news anytime on our website, and we'll be back with the next web-only Extra Time show next week. I'm Murray Williams for Radio New Zealand Sport. Bye for now. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 